If you would, uh, would you please turn with me to Hebrews 10. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25 to begin with this morning. Hebrews 10. Uh, We have been going through the Gospel of Luke, but we've taken a a brief break uh, in order to address a couple of questions. And the question that we looked at last week is, why don't we gather? Uh, For those of you who may be uh, new to New Community, whenever there's a fifth Sunday in a month, uh, we don't gather uh, in this building. Instead, we gather in the community, and we seek to, to be the church in the places that God has called us to be. We call it the away game. All right, so we talked about the why behind that last week and why we don't gather on those weeks. Now, as we talked about, <clears throat> uh, there's nowhere in Scripture that says on a, a, a month that has a fifth Sunday in it, don't gather in a church building, gather in a community and call it an away game. Like, there's nowhere in Scripture that says to do that. Instead, uh, this is a practice that, that comes out of biblical principles. And it, it, it's biblical principles that's founded in a command to go, in the Great Commissions, go and gr- make disciples. And so in order to go and make uh, disciples, we understand that th- there, there's a call to go. Like there's a call to move outward in, in all of that. And, and the reality is, is when we look at the discipleship, the spiritual formation of those first 12 guys that Jesus called, and we looked at the context in which that spiritual formation happened, what we see is that most of their spiritual formation happened in houses or around tables, on journeys, on mountainsides, in boats, in uh, arguments with religious leaders. Like 99% of their time was outside of a context like this in which they learned from Jesus, they began to imitate Jesus, and they followed Jesus. And and if you drill right down on it, only 1% of those disciples' time was spent with Jesus in a context where they listened to a monologue seated in rows in a building like this, in a synagogue. Less than 1% of their time. And so we as Christians, we have said, well, all of our spiritual formation is going to happen in a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. And we've, we've greatly limited what God has called us to go and be as his disciples. And so, you know, in light of that, if you think about it, why, why gather? What is the point of the gathering? And that's what the question that, that we're looking at today is, why do we come together? Why do we get together in this room? And I get it, like, I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. I don't have to convince you to show up this morning, right? You've come. But in light of the fact that 99% of your discipleship is meant to be had out there, why do this? What's the point? And so we're going to look at that uh, this morning. And the place that we're going to start is with Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. If you'll read along with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That phrase in there, which we're, we're going to, to, to hone in on a little bit more this morning, is put negatively by the author of, of Hebrews when he says, do not neglect to meet together. Put positively, there's an exhortation there to do gather. Do come 
together. If you don't come together, then you're neglecting something that's vital, something that's important for those of you who have, who, who have been saved by Jesus. And so the call there is, is together. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna get into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you uh, for the fact that you have always wanted to, to dwell among us, that it has been your heart to reconcile people who are far away from you back to you, that you've gone to great lengths in order to do so. Lord Jesus, thank you that you willingly came, that you accurately represented God to us, but that you represented us to God, that you went before us, and that you, being our ultimate high priest, paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be reconciled back into this love relationship with our Father. I pray in our time together this morning that uh, you would help us examine our hearts, help us to look at uh, why it is that we do this, why we take part in this, and, uh, and motivate us towards what you're motivated toward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in our time together this morning, uh, the first thing that we're, we're gonna do is we're gonna look at what the church is not. We're gonna, we're gonna ask this question, what is the church not? And, and it's really important that we ask this question because there's a lie that's creeped in about what the church is, and it's a lie that some of you actually might be holding on to and, and living your life based on, and it, it, it's bad theology, and it just needs to change. So we're gonna, what is the church not? Um, secondly, we're going to, to look at what the, the gathering is, its, it's purpose, and in, 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 in three things we're, we're gonna see as far as the purpose of the gathering. The first is that we gather to affirm the truth. We gather to affirm what is true. Secondly, we, we, we gather to remind or be reminded of that which is true. And lastly, we come to be encouraged by that which is true, okay? So uh, we're, we're gonna look at our purpose this morning and then lastly, we're, we're gonna get down to heart level. We're gonna get down to, to, to motive and we're gonna ask the question, why are you here? Why am I here? And, uh, and, and go deep with that, with that question. So, let's begin. What is the church not? What the church is not. Look back at, at, at uh, Hebrews 10, 19 with me. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and just stop right there. The author of Hebrews is saying that there's something that, that has come before this that he's building up on. Therefore, there's something else that he said before this, and because of this, you and I can draw near. We can, we can with confidence, go into the holy places. What holy places is he talking about? He's not talking about buildings like this. He's not talking about structures like this. And yet, this is an idea that many Christians hold on to. It's an idea that permeates our culture. And you maybe you've even heard somebody say, I wouldn't be caught dead in church because God would strike me dead. Right? Like there's this, this attitude or this idea that, that, that there's something about places like this that are different or special or holy or, or, or something about them. And, and so if you, if you don't belong, you should stay out. Or if you do belong, like, there's this idea, and, and even Christians have it, is, is what is the church? And you think about the church, and, 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 and you were, if you were asked what it is, do you conjure up in your mind a building like this? Do you think church is a place, that it's an address, that it's property? We tend to think of church as building. That's not what the author of Hebrews is telling us. It's not what he's pointing us to. And yet, it permeates our ideas. I remember as a kid, I watched a show called Highlander, 
was based on a movie series uh, that was done. And, and Highlander, it was about these immortal warriors who were going around killing each other until there was only one left. It's science fiction, okay. But they had the, this rule, and, and, and the rule said that you can't fight on holy ground. Like, you can't fight in churches. You can't do battle on church property because that's sacred, that is holy ground. Now, it's science fiction, but our art reflects what we believe. And there is a commonly held belief that this is holy ground. There's something sacred about this building. There's something sacred about this property. And, and this is the dwelling place of God. That is actually not what the New Testament teaches. You see, if we're a new covenant people, we need to let go of the old covenant ways. And the idea that God can be found in a box is an old covenant way. If we go back to where that idea begins, we look at uh, the, the Exodus, and God, he saves his people out of slavery, he brings them out into the wilderness in order to shape them into being his people. He's gonna be their God, they're gonna be his people. And, and, and you understand that, that from the beginning pages of scripture, God has always wanted to dwell with his people. We see with God in, in the Garden of Eden with our first parents, walking with them. God has always wanted to be with his people. But because of the fall, because sin and death entered the reality, because God is holy and he, doesn't, he, he, he can't stand to be with sin and death, there, there must be something that separates them that he could no longer have a face-to-face relationship with his human beings. But he still desired one. And so he brings these people out into the wilderness to make them his. And what he tells them to do is to build a tent, put together this thing called a tabernacle. And when you're, you're sojourning through the wilderness, when you stop, put that tent in the middle of your camp. And, and the, the glory of God will come and it will, will dwell in the midst of your people, though behind walls. Though in an imperfect way. You can draw near, but you can't get too close. You could draw near, but you can't see him face to face. God wanted to dwell with his people, but it was an imperfect way. And along with this tabernacle came this whole re- religious uh, system of sacrificings. This notion that in order to draw near to God, you had to atone for sin, and the atoning of sin comes through the shedding of blood. And so priests would uh, sacrifice animals, and they could enter into part of the temple. But, but there was a high priest, and, and the high priest one time a year could, could make a really big sacrifice, and then he could go into the most holy place. But you see, the closest humanity ever got to being face-to-face with God was one guy one time a year through the blood of a sacrifice. And see, all this points to something that, that, that needs to change. Like this, this is something that would, it would continue to go on and on and on because we're rebellious, because we're sinful, because we would just keep doing it. And so sacrifices would just need to be kept making. Like the, all of this points to the fact that there needs to be a final resolution to the, this way of doing it. Like in order for humanity to be restored back to God, like this has to change. There has to be something better. There has to be final resolution. And that comes in Jesus. God dwells, wants to dwell with his people. And so God the Son comes and he takes on flesh and he moves into the neighborhood, right? He's God. And as God, he's able to represent who God is to us, but as man, he's able to represent us to God. But he's a different man than we are. He's a righteous man. He never disbelieved God. He never disobeyed the Father. He never rebelled against him. He's righteous. 
And so he becomes this righteous high priest for us, the mediator we need to stand between us and God. And, and he will make that ultimate sacrifice, that final sacrifice that we would need to, to end this whole system in order to, to take God out of the box and, and to stop slaughtering all of these animals. He would need to make that sacrifice, and he does. And he goes to the cross, and he gives his body, and he pours out his blood. He becomes the sacrifice. And because of that, the wrath of God is assuaged. Because of that sacrifice, we get to enter in. You know, symbolically, in the temple, there's this, this curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of humanity. When Jesus died, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And it's as if God is saying, come on in. Because of the Son, because of what he's done for you, because he shed his blood for you, come on in. Have access to me again. Now, when the author of Hebrews says we can have confidence to, to come into the Holy of Holies or come into these holy places, he's not talking about a tabernacle. He's not talking about the temple. He's not talking about church buildings. Uh, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15 says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. You see, if we are in Christ, we're, we are a new covenant people. We're a new covenant people. And God is out of the box of the tabernacle. He's out of the box of the temple. He's no longer dwelling there. Where is he? The passage continues, verse 13 or 15. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The first covenant contained a law, a law which we couldn't keep, but a law that Jesus kept for us in order to redeem us from it. But that comes at a cost. And as verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He's our high priest. He makes that ultimate sacrifice. And as a result, we have a new covenant with God, but we continually try to live under the old one. See, when we claim that God is in a place like this, we're putting God back in the box. And God doesn't live in a box anymore. God doesn't dwell in a box. Where does he dwell? Where does he dwell? Um, Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You filled with the fullness of God. 
One chapter earlier, he says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If, 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 if that's not concise enough for you, 1 Corinthians three sixteen. do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Where's God? He's not in a tabernacle. He's not in a temple. And he's not in buildings like this. Where's God? He's in you. By the power of his spirit, he's in you and he's in us. And amen. We, why would we put God back in a box? Why would uh, we as Christians who have access to God that through the power of the Spirit, like living in us, who, 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 our sins have been forgiven, like we have access to, like why would, we, why would we put God back in a box? And I think the only reason we would do that is so that we can control him and so that we can avoid him. You see, the implications of God in you versus God in a building is mind-blowing. What that means, the implications of the Spirit of God living in you as opposed to living in a building down the street is life-changing. See, he's in you. But, but we also see in Ephesians, Paul talking about the fact that the Father raised Christ from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated right now at the right hand of the Father. And spiritually speaking, if you were in Christ, then you also are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. See, that's the places we, we get to be. That's what the places that the, the author of, of Hebrews is talking about, that we get to have confidence to be in. We can be in the presence of God because our shame and our guilt is gone. What a beautiful thing that is. You see, we have to, to wrap our minds and our hearts around the fact that, that church is not a building. A building can't go anywhere. A building can't do anything. A church is a people, and a people are sent. So what the church is not, it's not a building. So what is it then? If you think about this, uh, if you don't have to gather, uh, come together, uh, you know, um, Think about live streams. A couple years ago, we went, we went to the live stream, right? COVID shut everything down. We had to figure out the whole live stream thing. And, and, and people were like, wow, this is, this is not bad. I get to, you know, attend church in my pajamas from my couch. This is fantastic. And then people began to realize, hey, I don't have to attend my church. My church's live stream stinks. I can attend somebody else's church virtually. So I'll do that. And like the reality is, it's like after a period of time, like people didn't come back. Like when the doors opened up and we began to, to, to come out of our holes, like people didn't come back because they were content to have church on a screen. And you know what the reality is? As, as, as the numbers that, that we begin to see and the statistics come out, like those numbers have plummeted. They're not even attending online anymore. They're just gone. So if you don't have to attend in, 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 in person, and, and as if what we talked about is true, what we said before, like if most of our discipleship's gonna happen out there anyway, so why gather? And if God's not here, if God's in here, then why gather? It's a really important question. What is the purpose of, of our gatherings? So let's talk about it. The first is this. 
We gather in order to affirm that which is true. Do you realize that when you got up this morning and you made your way here, just by coming through those doors, you were making a statement about what you believe to be true? You were affirming that God is. You were affirming that God's people exist. Just coming here this morning is an affirmation of the truth. Great job, everybody. Showing up is like nine-tenths of the battle sometimes. But you came. And that in and of itself, it's an affirmation. We as Christians, we're called to proclaim that which is true, but we don't just proclaim that which is true with our words. It's not just what we say about who God is and what he's done and how it's changed us. If it's true, then it needs to flow out of us and it needs to come through our actions. So showing up is important. But secondly, we we affirm that which is true through song. Now, we we don't limit worship just to singing. You know, we we can worship God in in all sorts of ways, but but God has made singing as a special part of what it means to, to worship Him in ways that we can't worship in other ways. Songs are important, music is important. So we affirm what we believe through song. And you know what? That means that our lyrics should be truthful. That means that if we're gonna sing a song in this context and it's, it's of being affirmed as truth, like it better be true. It better be theologically accurate. It better be you know, right about who God is and what he's done. Just because a song is catchy or, or it's popular on Christian radio or something like that doesn't mean it should be sung necessarily if it's not true. Well, we're, we're quick to fight over music you know, how loud a music is, how soft the music is, how, how fast, how slow, how old a song is, how new a song is. I mean, some of you this morning heard hymns and there was a part of your heart going, oh. But were the lyrics true? Were you affirming that which was true through song? So we sing, we serve. And so whether that's you know, serving uh, our kids in kid life or big life down there, or that's serving, greeting people coming through that door, you're making coffee or you're filling communion trays or, or you're providing safety and security for, 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 for people within this gathering. Like if you're up here on the platform or you're behind that, but like whatever it is that you're doing when serving, do you know that you're affirming the truth that people matter? We as Christians believe that human beings matter because they're made in the image of God. Our value and our worth comes from him. By serving another person, you are saying, I see the value in you. By serving other people in this gathering, you're saying, I am glad you're here. You are important, you matter. And you matter not because of who and what you are, but because of God's image in you. We affirm the truth through through serving one another. Nextly, we, we, we affirm the truth when we, when we listen to the sermon preached. Now I want to make a distinction between teaching and sermons, preaching. If I get up here and I, and I tell you stuff that's true, you know, and, I, and the, 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 the point is to convey knowledge to you, then it is one-sided, right? If I get up here and, I, and I'm giving you good recommendations of how to live your life, if I'm here to give you good advice, you know, if I'm, if I'm here to, you know, if I'm here to nag you into good behavior, like there's all sorts of things that I could use this platform in order to do, but all of those things are less than what they should be, and all of those things are one-sided. But the preaching of God's word is not one-sided. I want to introduce you to, no, okay. 
sorry. Somebody makes motions at me when I'm on the stage, and then I get paranoid and my fly's down. <laughs> and that's on the live stream. <laughs> the notes, the notes. Okay. Um, I want to introduce you to a word, okay? Amen. One word, two syllables. It's an ancient word. It's found throughout scripture, but it's not a word we say very much. The, the word literally means be it so, or so be it. It's a word of affirmation, okay? When we see it in scripture, God's word is proclaimed and people's response to it is amen, okay? Now, a few weeks ago, we gathered with other churches in Xenia for the Xenia-wide uh, gathering downtown, and, and, and we, we were there with, with, with other denominations, and you know, I think there was 14 other churches that come together, and, and I don't know if you, if you were a part of it, if you were there, you heard the word amen. You, were, you heard uh-huh. You heard mm-hmm. Amen. Like, we heard people vocally express affirmation in response to hearing the word of God. And I think there were people who walked away from that thinking, you know, I wish we had that kind of freedom. I wish that we could feel that kind of expression. But, but we're, we're not the right culture for that word. We're, we're not a part of the right denomination for that word. We're not the right flavor of Christianity that we can say that in our worship gatherings. Do you need to understand, the word amen transcends culture. The word amen is God's word, and it's for God's people. The word amen, it's for everybody. If you're in Christ, that word's yours. And it's a way to affirm the truth when you hear it proclaimed. I think some people think, I'm not the right gender to say amen. If I say amen because I'm a female, I'm gonna get told that women aren't supposed to speak in church, I'm gonna get drug out of here and they're gonna make me wear a head covering in order to come back in. That's not the truth of scripture. Amen is for God's people, men and women, regardless of culture, regardless of denomination. Think about it. How is amen translated into Spanish? Amen. Chinese. Amen. Swahili. See, it defies translation. It doesn't need to be translation. And, and, and that's like what God's truth is. God's truth is transcendent. Like, it covers all people, all cultures. It doesn't matter your language. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter any of that stuff if it's true. See, this word amen, it's an important word. We should embrace it. Now let's start. We'll start with baby steps. Ready for a baby step? Just one syllable. Mm. Mm. Right, you hear God's word proclaimed, that's true? Mm. Mm. Right? Now let's add some more to it. Amen. Amen. Let's try it out. Now let's put it into practice. I'm going to say some stuff that's true and stuff that's not true. Let's see if you know the difference. Ready? God is good. I don't have to look elsewhere. God is great. I don't have to be in control. God is glorious. I don't have to fear people. God is gracious. I don't have to prove myself. The Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl. 
Now, that's not, that's not eternal truth. All right, that's blind hope. That's all we got at this point as Steelers fans. Anyway, but you see, hearing God's word, it's not meant to be one-sided. I know I'll talk for 35 to 45 minutes for somebody sometimes. And for some of you who this is the first time, this is you know, probably going to be your last time hearing that. But it's not meant to be one-sided. It's not my opinion. When you say amen, you're not affirming me. You're affirming God's word to be true. Uh, lastly, giving. You know God doesn't need your money because, yeah, she already has it. <laughs> See, you're stewards of it. All the financial treasure that you have, all that stuff, like God has, has entrusted you with it, but God doesn't need your money. You're, you're stewards of it, and so you're, you're meant to, to use it to affirm what is true. And so you give it when you see God at work in the world in order to affirm that. And so I hope that you're giving. But here's the reality is most of us give online now, right? Most of us have like a draft from our account or something like that, and so we don't even know it when we're giving. We're not even conscientious of it when we give. And there's nothing wrong with, with doing it that way, but, but how do we, and this is an open-ended question, how do we, in a gathering, acknowledge the fact that we affirm what God is doing by giving our offering to him? And, and here's an idea. Maybe um, once a month or whenever you think about it, as you're walking down the, the hallway out there and you see the giving boxes out there, just reach out and touch that. Not, not that it's like a sign to anybody else, but you're just you and God but you're saying, I affirm that it is good to give to what God is doing here. So it's affirmation. Secondly, it's reminding. Second purpose of these gatherings is to remind, right? And, and so a couple of Old Testament examples, one Old Testament, one new. We are a forgetful people. We forget easily, especially what God has done. We are forgetful people, and so uh, you look at the Old Testament, you see God has saved these people out of slavery in Egypt, and how did he do that? Like these 10 powerful plagues that he poured out on Egypt, and so they get to go free, and God is leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and they get to this big body of water, and Pharaoh's army is barreling down on them, and God opens up the sea, and they walk through on dry land, and the the soldiers following after them, like the sea crushes them, and they're destroyed, like powerful, and then they go out into the desert, and God is like he's giving them bread from heaven and water shooting out of rocks and all this fantastic stuff and then they get to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up and he's gone for apparently too long and people start freaking out I need something to worship and so they ask Aaron and Aaron provides this this calf this golden calf and he says to them this is the God that brought you out of Egypt and slavery this is your savior and they bow down and worship to it why? because they forgot you know, people, some people they, they'll, they'll tell you, like, if I just have a powerful experience with God, it will change me and I'll become a Christian. The Bible is replete with people who have had powerful experiences of the truth of God, confronted with him, and still were able to turn away and go, hmm, whatever. They forgot. You look at the New Testament. Matthew chapter 14, there's 5,000 people that Jesus is preaching too. And he's healing them, and he's spending the whole day with them, and they're hungry. And he looks at his disciples and says, we got to feed these people. And they're like, how do we do that? Jesus multiplies a few loaves and bread, and, and he passes 5,000 people fed, plus leftovers. One chapter later, just one chapter later, there's only 4,000 people this time. And again, hungry, 
How do we feed them? The disciples are like, oh. Like, they just forgot the power and the provision of God that he just demonstrated to them. And the truth is, we do the same thing. We will come in here and we will hear about who God is and what he's done for us and how that changes our identity, and we will walk out of here and five minutes later, forgot. Because we're forgetful. So the gathering serves to remind us of all that. Lastly, it's about encouragement. You think about the fact that we will spend six days out there. Six days immersed in a world, immersed in social media, news media, will be exposed to all sorts of cultural worldviews and beliefs and ideas, and there will be this constant proclamation, this preaching to us, telling us what we should find our identity in, what, what we should find our sexuality in, how, uh, where should we should put our hope, where should we... What should we fear? What should we, not? like, all of these things, they will just inundate and cover us, cover over our lives. And, and, and the reality is, this, that's where God has called us to. And to pick up our crosses and go out into that is a difficult, difficult prospect, especially week after week after week. But the reality is, is where can we go? We need a place to go where, we're, where the noise can stop, where we can tune out all of those lies and all of that preaching that is, that is just pounding our heads and pounding our ears. Where can we go? See, we come into a place like this and we recognize, man, these are my people. And it doesn't matter like where you're at in life, whether you're a parent or you know, social economic background or, or, or what you vote or, you know, like all of those, there's, there's a bunch of things that we don't agree on that divide us, but there's one thing that does matter and that is the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and he lives in me. The fact that we have been redeemed and we have been saved and we have been bought, like we have an eternity and a hope, we have something that the rest of the world doesn't have, that makes you my people. You know what it's like to be around your people, to feel that, to know that. It's important to have people. We get to come and we get to share in that. We, we, we find a type of cleansing in this. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the priests, they would go uh, these, through these ritual baths in order to go into, to, into the temple. And it wasn't really about, you know, um, uh, germs or dirt. It was more about, um, you know, spiritual purity and, 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 and you know, uh, washing from sin. And the reality is because of what Jesus has done, we've been washed. Right? Jesus was punished for our sin. That's, the punishment of sin is gone from us. But the reality is, is we still live in the presence of sin. And until Jesus comes back, that, that's gonna be the case. But, but, but we need a type of, of cleansing. Not, not cleansing from our sin, Jesus did that. But sort of washing off the world and a place to go and, and to find that to find encouragement. One thing that is missing from our gatherings is testimonies. I wish we had more testimonies. I wish we had people who would say, you know what, I saw God do this out there this week. I saw that person, and I saw what God was doing in them, and I saw how God used them, and I saw this change taking place. Like, imagine if we, if, we, if we saw God at work and we didn't keep it to ourselves. And so I'm opening the door for that. Like if you know of a story, you've seen God at work, please email me, tell me, let me put you up here. And it's not about making your name great, it's about making God's name great. It's about showing the world who he is. And it's encouraging when we're reminded of what God's doing out there. We need to hear it. 
And so the church is, it's not a building, it's you. And you gather to remind, to affirm, to encourage in the truth. And that all is sort of inward looking. It is. That's about us. It's about our needs. We need those things. But do you know that when the church gathers, it's also a testimony to the world? That when the church gathers, we are proclaiming, here's a people of God, formed by God, because God wants to dwell with his people, and they've been sent to you. We're proclaiming something true to the world. Last thing to talk about before we close up. Personal motive. Looking at your heart. What are you here for? Why are you here? Why am I here? If I'm going to ask the question of you, I need to ask the question of myself. Why am I here? Four years ago, my family was uh, packing up our, uh, our pod and, uh, and we were having, getting ready to have it shipped from Oregon to Ohio. We were finishing the cell of our, our house and um, we were saying goodbye to friends and family and, uh, and our neighbors. And it was the most significant adventure we've, we've undertaken. And, uh, and why? I mean, why would I lead my family in doing that? I think people make decisions like that, you know, based on career. You know, I, I needed a change, right? I needed a new challenge. I'm gonna take on a new career. Or, uh, or maybe it was about money. You know, cost of living in Ohio is better than in Oregon, and so maybe my dollar can go further and I can give myself a raise by doing that, you know? And maybe it was about money, or maybe it was about, you know, affirmation. It was about, you know, here's a role where I'm up in front of people and the, and the chance for people to say, boy, good job, and pat me on the back, and I really like that. Maybe it was about affirmation, or maybe, maybe it was about authority. Maybe it was about control. Maybe it was about being in charge. I, I wasn't in a place of authority in my previous church or in a place of authority in my, my, my role at, the, at what I did for a living, but, but now I do. Maybe it's about control and power. Maybe that's why I did it. You know, the reality is, is there's at times, because I'm fallen, when those things have been at work tugging on my heartstrings. But you know what? God in his grace to me has given me a new heart. And below all that, there actually is a God-given motive. And, and, and I look at my past, and, and that, that motive has been there for a long time. That motive was behind why I joined the military at 18. It was behind why I got out of the military at 21 and went to Bible school. But here's this, this motive in me, and that is I want to be a part of something that matters. I want to be a part of something that lasts, and not just for a few years or for a few decades. I want to be a part of something that matters for eternity. And the reality is I found one thing, one thing that matters for eternity. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus done for me that changes my trajectory forever. And if I can be a part of that happening in somebody else's life, then that's what matters. That's the only thing I found that will last forever. I want to be a part of that. In other words, I don't want to build a sandcastle with my life. Remember as kids, we would go to the beach and we would take buckets of wet sand and pile them on top of each other and we would build sand castles. And it's a great way to spend the afternoon. It's not a great way to spend a life. We look at, there's some adults out there who have skill and, and, and they're creative and they'll build stuff out of sand. In, in Xenia, the week before 4th of July, uh, they drop up bucket, I mean, huge amounts of sand on different street corners, and, uh, and they do something where they build them, and uh, they make cool stuff. But week after 4th of July, gone, right? People build beautiful things on beaches out of sand, but you know what? 
the, the moisture evaporates, the sand blows away, the sea rolls in and reclaims what, it, what belongs to it. Like it just doesn't last, it doesn't matter. And I, I, that's cool, great, do that. But I, I don't understand that. Why build something that's ultimately not gonna last? And I think that's what people are doing with their lives. They're building sandcastles. They're spending all their time and all their money and all their resources building something that just will not last. And we do that with our churches. I think there's two ways we see that. One is we recognize that people are, in look, are looking for a high. People are looking for transcendent experience, euphoria. And we look to all sorts of places to get that. We'll abuse alcohol for that. We'll abuse drugs for that. We'll abuse sex for that. We'll abuse power for that. We'll abuse money. Like, we'll abuse all sorts of things in order to have some sort of transcendent, euphoric experience that elevates us. We're looking for a high. But ultimately, think those things, they don't last, right? You live a life that it pursues those things. You and I both know without much explanation that that won't last. But you know what? That's the same thing that is put in front of people by church leaders who want to entice people to come in and experience a, an emotional high because God is here. We want to make you feel the presence of God and we're gonna do that through powerful music and through powerful lighting and through all sorts of like pyrotechnics and, and we're gonna have a message that just makes you feel fine and dandy when you leave. Like we're just gonna fill you with all sorts of fluff and rainbows and send you out with this emotional high that you'll crave all week long and, and do everything you can to get back the next week and it's a drug. It's emotional manipulation and it's not the truth because it's built on a lie that we have God you can come experience God here with us, but you can't have him on your own. It's a lie. Churches do this in another way. It's through shame and guilt. Remember, we live in a, in, in a culture that, that is really looking to assuage its guilt, and, and the church can offer that. We'll assuage your guilt if you come and jump through our hoops. You, you come and we'll tell you about all the things that you should do and all the things that you should avoid doing. And most of all, what you should do is come to church because at church, that's where you'll find the absolution for the guilt that you feel in life. And that's a lie. Remember what the, the author of Hebrews has said to us. We have this great high priest who has entered into the holy place with the shedding of his blood and he has made an end to shame and guilt if you're in him. And because of what he's done, God has taken out of the box and he's put in you. You want to be in the presence of God? Great. Open up your, your Bible. Pray with other Christians. Go engage in the mission. Go, in, go serve somewhere. God is with you all the time. He's in you. You want to experience that power? Then live by the power of the Holy Spirit, feeding him instead of feeding your flesh. But you see what Christ has done for us. And, and we're being built into something that matters into something that lasts. But the thing that is holding us together is the gospel. It's what gives us permanence. It's what will last forever. It's the gospel. What do you want to be a part of? Why are you here? Here's what's going to happen next. I'm going to pray. Ryan's going to come back. We're going to sing. And then in a moment, we're going to partake of communion together. 
Now, uh, if this is your first time here, uh, we have uh, trays of elements that are in the center aisle about knee level. You just take those out when the song is concluded and pass them down. We have gluten-free elements in that tray. If you uh, don't need a gluten-free element, will you please pass those by and take one of the other ones, all right? If it gets to the end of the row and all that's left is gluten-free, it tastes almost exactly the same, but you know gluten-free stuff. Anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how wonderful you are that you want to dwell with us. And the truth is, is there's, there's lots of people that we would prefer not to dwell with, and, you, and for, for you to look at us and want to dwell with us is kind of mind-boggling. But you've gone great lengths to restore us to yourself and to provide a way for us to be together through the blood of your Son. And Lord Jesus, you willingly gave that. So Father, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, I pray this morning that, that we would see what matters and what doesn't. And that we would desire to live out the truths of your gospel in order to see a world changed by it. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.